this morning, I'm preaching a sermon that came to me in an unusual way. It's never happened like this before. You know, Sunday nights in Seattle, I preach a different sermon. Because by the time I've preached it five times in the morning, even I'm tired of hearing it. God's tired of hearing it. And I know that we have some people who come both Sunday morning and Sunday night, so I always preach different on Sunday night. And I love Sunday night services because we don't have anything before it, nor do we have anything after it. And so we just can, you know, work with the Spirit, and He just does incredible things in the lives of people. But, you know, when I was walking onto our campus last Sunday night, I got there about 5.30 p.m. The second I stepped on the campus, the Lord spoke to me. And when I say the Lord spoke to me, hear me. I'm not talking about an audible voice. I have heard the audible voice of the Lord once in my life. But I think sometimes the way that people talk about hearing the voice of God leads other people to believe that they've got a two-way radio and they're just hearing audible voices all the time. If you hear audible voices all of the time, you're not spiritual, you're sick. And by the way, once the Lord speaks to you the first time audibly, it's almost always an invitation to learn the way that he speaks in his still small voice to your spirit. If the Lord always has to shout to get your attention, that doesn't mean that you're spiritual. It means that your heart is hard. So when I say the Lord spoke to me, what I don't mean is a scroll was unrolled in heaven and the angel of the Lord sat next to me and spoke to me in an audible voice. What I mean is I sensed his voice in my spirit. I walked into that campus and the Lord spoke to me and said, you will preach out of Zechariah 1 about zeal for the house of the Lord. And I thought, well, God, I'm just trying to get through Sunday night. And he said, next Sunday, you will preach on zeal for the house of the Lord Sunday morning, and I will show myself strong amongst the people. And I said, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. <laughs> you know, this week, I had the privilege of flying out on Tuesday down to Dallas-Fort Worth to film on Daystar. And then I left from Texas for a direct flight to Panama to preach in the nation's largest church at their youth conference with 5,000 young people and just saw God really do some powerful things. But I realized on the way to the airport on Tuesday that I forgot something very important. Now, you know what it's like when you travel. There's always at least one thing that you forget. It don't matter how much you pack. It don't matter how many lists you write. I have never traveled a day in my life where I have at least not forgotten one thing. Now, there's a lot of things that you can forget that you can buy when you land. I forgot my toothbrush. I can buy that. I forgot a clean t-shirt. I can buy that. I forgot my hair product. I can buy that. But on the way to the airport, I realized I had forgotten my passport, which you cannot buy. And without it, you cannot travel to a foreign nation. And I thought to myself, oh boy, I'm in trouble. And so I started texting people on the airplane saying, now listen, I apologize for what I'm about to say, but I forgot my passport. We need God to work a miracle. It just so happened that a lady who attends this church is a former Alaska Airlines agent uh, and so she was able to get on the phone and make some calls and go and pick up my passport, but we really had no way to transport it to me because, you know, the airline kind of frowns upon people handing off things to other people to travel so they can deliver it to you. And so I feel like I'm having to promise people it's not cocaine, it's not a kilo of heroin, it's a passport. <laughs> And I'm just praying on the plane, God, I need a miracle because without this passport, I can't travel. I gotta text these guys, listen, I'm gonna have to bail on the invite, I apologize. And as I'm getting off the plane, we were sitting in the back, walking now through first class, about to get off the plane in Dallas, the stewardess pulls me aside. She says, are you Russell Johnson? 
I said, well, that depends. Are you angry or are you happy? She says, my husband and I watch you preach on TV every week. I said, oh, thank you. I said, it means a lot. I appreciate the feedback. She says, could I take a picture with you? My husband's going to die that you were on this plane. And I said, well, the Lord will raise him up. But yes, let's take a quick pic. As we're taking a picture, another stewardess shows up and says, hey, I watch you on TV as well. You're that preacher. Another lady is deboarding the plane. She walks by and she goes, that's my pastor. And pretty soon we had a whole coalition standing in first class, all somehow connected to the ministry here at Pursuit. So she takes her picture, takes my picture. And then after we're done, I say, now listen, I'm gonna need a favor from you. And she says, sure, anything. And I said, look, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but in about 24 hours, I'm supposed to preach in the nation of Panama and I don't have my passport. In five minutes, she was on the call with her manager. She coordinated it with the Alaska attendant back in Seattle. They were able to send the passport on the next flight to Dallas that landed at 4.30 in the morning. This agent personally picked it up and then hand delivered it to me so I could get back on the plane and make it to Panama. And I thought, my God, warfare is greatest when breakthrough is closest. I don't believe there's a demon under every rock, but I do believe that the enemy loves to take advantage of crisis moments in our life to try to sow anxiety into our heart so that without even knowing it, we miss out on the assignment that's in front of us. And so I just sensed in my spirit, God's gonna do something powerful in Panama. God is gonna do something powerful in that nation. I don't know quite yet what it is, but there is no reason why there's been this amount of drama to get where I am going. So God began to stir my expectation for what he would do. And I am telling you, God did some incredible things. I'm going to share on that a little later in my sermon, but I wanted to preface today's sermon with that story to stir your appetite for what God is doing in the nations of the earth. Now, listen, we are not self-made and we are not in an isolated moment. I believe that we are on the very precipice of seeing national awakening in countries around the earth by which people return to God with humble hearts and a available spirits and essentially say to God, do what you have so desired to do. If you will be our God, we will be your people. And one of the great privileges of being able to travel is you begin to see these outbreaks and these hot spots of revival and reformation where God is stirring it all over the earth. And it was just this reminder that God, number one, knows what he's doing. Number two, when the world is in chaos, God is still in control and he is weaving the narrative of nations together that will coalesce in a brilliant patchwork of outpouring like we have never seen before. I promise you, we are coming in to national awakening in the nations of the earth unlike anything we have ever seen before. Now, I want to preach to you this morning out of the book of Zechariah, which is an Old Testament minor prophet. Now, many of you have been raised in church your entire lives, and you've probably never heard a sermon out of Zechariah 1. And the reason for that is because a lot of preachers and pastors stay out of the minor prophets because they have a hard time collating and translating those words for a contemporary audience. But when we read prophetic literature, you've got to understand there is both a now and a not yet fulfillment 
of these words because God by his spirit spoke these words and they never return void. You and I, because of the blood of Jesus, have now been engrafted into the covenantal reality that God made with his people in the Old Testament, which means the promises back then in a certain way also apply to us in our very moment today. It doesn't mean that it's a one-for-one translation, but the prophetic principles that we find in the Old Testament weren't just time-limited words for a time-limited people. They were placed in scripture by the God who is outside of time, who by his spirit still speaks to the church, which has an ear to hear and has an eye to see. And so as I'm teaching out of Zechariah, yes, I understand it's a historical document. Yes, I understand it's a 2,500-year-old book, but I'm here to tell you the God who was and is and forevermore shall be still speaks by his living word to living people in this moment. And these words are rich and they carry power for the very crisis that we face in our country today. Now in Zechariah 1, the Bible says this, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors, but this is what the Lord Almighty says now. <laughs> return to me and I will return to you. We see this sentiment repeated by the brother of Jesus, James, when he writes his letter to the churches in the New Testament. He says, if you will draw near unto God, God will in turn draw near unto you. This is a prophetic principle that lasts for all eternity. When men and women through humility and laid down agendas, draw near to the holy God who sits on a throne above the circle of the earth. God in turn turns his face and his favor once again to his covenantal people. And when man returns to God and God returns to man, it creates a spiritual force that no devil in hell can stop. And we are in one of those moments now, where we are saying, God, we have tried it in our own way. God, we have found ourselves falling flat on our face over and over again. No amount of money can replace the presence of your anointing. No amount of technology can replace the purity of your power. No amount of human ingenuity or cultural philosophy can ever medicate or mediate the trauma of the human soul. God, we are now once again drawing near to you as the only hope for our generation, our nation, and our country. And we are saying, God, do here what you have so desired to do. We are returning to you. And God, now we ask that you would return to us. Now watch, watch. The Hebrew children, by the time that this is written, have been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Their country was overran by an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. The treasures of the temple were stolen. The young women like Esther are married off to their captors. The young men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are kidnapped and forced to serve Nebuchadnezzar as he ruthlessly expands the Babylonian empire across the entire Middle East. This was a people whose national identity had been erased. 
temple had been destroyed. The next generation had been carried off into slavery. And in the moment where everything seems all but lost, God raises up a Zechariah who says, oh, it is true that God was angry with your ancestors, but it is more true that if you will return to him, Yahweh will return to you. And if you find yourself far from God today, hear me so clearly. He isn't the one who has moved. The act of returning to God is the act of the prodigal coming back home. The father hasn't moved. The father hasn't changed. The father hasn't forgotten. He is right where you left him. And if you will return to him, he would in fact answer you again. If God's people would return to him in heart and in deed, God would heal their land and restore their hope. Why? Because our God is the covenant keeping God. So what does God do? He raises up a prophet and a priest named Zechariah, which means this, the Lord remembers. And what does Zechariah do? He tells the nation, it is not too late for you. <laughs> All throughout scripture, parents would name their children in a prophetic way. They would name them after a characteristic of God that the region or the nation so desperately needed. The parents of Zechariah, who we know nothing about, saw something in the destiny of their son that motivated them to name him in a way that would serve as a prophetic signpost to a nation that was in exile. Even when you feel like God has forgotten. Our God will remember you. Nine years ago, when we were considering what to name this church, we had every idea under the sun. We had every name come our direction. What are we gonna call it? What will it be known for? What are the characteristics that we want it to emulate? And I'll never forget the day sitting on a dock at Lake Rossiger, where all of a sudden, as we were sitting around talking, somebody said the word, what if we called it pursuit? And it was like a fire hit my soul. And I knew in that moment that this would be a prophetic name that would declare to the region, our hope is not dead. Spiritual lethargy is not our future. We will not fall asleep to the presence of God or to the pressing issues of this moment. We will be a church that pursues him as we worship a God who pursues pursues us and this will serve as a prophetic declaration to the people of the Northwest that the light of glory has come. It is time to shake off the sadness and the burdens of yesterday and set our eyes on Mount Zion, the God who remembers his people. Since its founding in 3000 BC, Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times. It's been captured and recaptured 44 times. It's been besieged 23 times. It's been completely destroyed twice. Israel has been carried off into captivity four different times. And in 1948, it became the only nation on earth to go out of existence, only to come back into existence 1900 years later in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And still today, Jerusalem is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on earth because there is nothing the enemy hates more than covenantal inheritance. 
And hear me, friend, the enemy never attacks that which isn't valuable. A dead church, not a target for the enemy. A dead marriage, not a target for the enemy. A dead business, not a target for the enemy. A dead region, not a target for the enemy. But if you belong to something living, watch out. And why do you think the enemy hates covenantal inheritance? Because it reminds him of what he can't do. He can't reproduce. The only thing that he is the father of is the father of lies. And this is why the enemy is after your inheritance because that's the only way he will ever have one is if he can steal yours. You are a walking, living, breathing reminder of something the devil will never have. And that's why his assignment is to steal, kill, and destroy everything that you've got. And this is why you absolutely cannot give up when things become difficult, because difficulty is the best sign that you are pointed in the right direction. Labor pain is a pretty good sign the baby is coming. Spiritual pain is a pretty good sign breakthrough is coming. Although the nation of Israel has been in bondage for 70 years, Something very unusual has started to happen. Nebuchadnezzar has died. He's been replaced by a man named Cyrus. And the Bible says the heart of Cyrus is moved by the Lord. And he decides to allow the Jews to go back home. Watch. When a wicked king allows a conquered people to go back home to restore their ransacked temple and rebuild their torn walls, it's not because it made sense politically. It's because God is bending the political arc of history in the direction of covenantal destiny. The heart of the king is like water in the hand of God. He moves it in whatever direction he chooses. See, God is sovereign above the nations of the earth. When they rage and plot vain things, he laughs. They may think they are in control, but it is our God who has the final say. And watch the partnership at play. A prophet named Zechariah declares and a king named Cyrus decrees. Watch. A prophet's position is in the government of heaven. A king's position is in the government of man. Zechariah heard the voice of God in heavenly places, but he needed a partner in earthly places to take what is above and manifest it below. The Bible says the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man, which means God has given you dominion and authority on earth to release below what already exists above. When somebody gets healed, it is the releasing of that which is above to those who are below. When somebody gets saved, it is the releasing of that which is above to those who are below. When somebody gets breakthrough, it is the releasing of that which is above to somebody who is below. Now the apostle Peter says, if you're a believer, you've been made a king and a priest unto God, which means you've got a heavenly assignment and you've got an earthly one, which means you've got a heavenly mandate and you've got an earthly one. The best way to describe this is through the analogy of a ladder, because I think for so many of us, we get stuck in either or spirituality instead of both and spirituality. Remember the disciples who go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James, and John? 
And all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured in glory, which must have been the most powerful sight ever to see. All of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appear with him. Elijah representing the prophets, Moses representing the law, Jesus representing the fulfillment of both. And while he is standing there and he's transfigured, Peter is so shook that he sticks his foot in his mouth, which is his practice. And he says, whoa, let's build three tabernacles here. We'll build a real nice one for you, Jesus. We'll get one for Elijah and one for Moses. Let us never leave this place. It is so irritating that God has to tell Peter, shut up from heaven. Stop talking. Listen to my son for once. And why? Because Peter's temptation was to camp in his heavenly mandate and miss out on his earthly one. And our temptation as believers is that we build tabernacles to whatever the proclivity of our spirit points to. Now I love the conference moments, I love the altar moments, but the purpose of being impacted in the heavenly place is to have power in the earthly one. I can't be so heavenly minded that I am no earthly good, and I can't be so earthly minded that I am no heavenly good. I've gotta be a both and believer who understands that I've got a mandate above which gives me authority below. Zechariah was a prophet who heard the voice of God above. Cyrus was a king who had the authority below. God partners them for the advancement of his kingdom prerogative. Fast forward to the New Testament and you are both a prophet and a king because you belong to Christ, which means I've got the ability to hear his voice on the mountain. I've got the authority to use his power in the valley. It is not an either or dichotomy. It is a both and synergy. And when I under understand my role as a believer. It gives me authority to answer the prayer of Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it's being done in heaven. There are some folks who never want to leave the prayer closet, and I love prayer warriors. But there are some folks who never want to leave the food bank, and I love the food bank volunteers. What we need in this season is people who are able to partner the spiritual reality with the earthly mandate into one synergistic mandate from heaven. I've got authority above. I've got power below. For I am both a king and a priest before God. Now watch. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah again. During the night I had a vision, there was before me a man who was mounted on a red horse. He was standing amongst the myrtle trees in a ravine. Now you've got to understand this in prophetic literature, all the images that are being used are describing otherworldly realities. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. This time it's a vision. In that vision, he sees a man, but it's not any ordinary man. It's the son of man. It's what theologians would call a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus prior to the incarnation in the New Testament. A lot of people have messed up Trinitarian theology believing that Jesus was a created being by virtue of the Holy Spirit causing Mary to conceive. That is Mormon theology. That is not Christian theology. Christian theology is that we have one God made manifest in three persons and they are co-eternal and they are co-equal, meaning that from the very foundations of the earth and even before, there has always been a God who had a son, who had a spirit, and they worked together in unison for the forming of nations and for the transformation of people. Now watch. It's interesting 
that Zechariah would see the angel of the Lord, the man, the son of man, standing amongst the myrtle tree. Did you know that the myrtle tree comes from the evergreen family? The state tree of Washington? It was known for its blossoming flower. It's interesting because it was known for its blossoming flower that wouldn't release a fragrance until it was crushed. It's interesting that Esther's name before she went into Babylon was Hadassah. The name Hadassah in Hebrew translates to myrtle tree. Watch. Zechariah has a vision and he sees a man, Jesus, seated on a red horse, representing victorious judgment, standing amongst a field of myrtle trees, representing Esther's. And Zechariah knows this is now a turning point for the nation. I've got a word from heaven and I've got permission on earth and God by his spirit is going to rebirth a covenantal people in a day. Now watch, then the angel of the Lord who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, I have great zeal. <laughs> that word zealous in the Hebrew means this, to be provoked unto intense desire. <laughs> God is not saying I have passion, so therefore I am zealous in this immediate moment because good old Zechariah is pulling on my heartstrings. God is saying, I stood in the furnace in the book of Daniel. I stood amongst the candlesticks in the book of Revelation. And I am standing amongst the myrtle trees in the book of Zechariah. I have remembered the ones I could not forget. I know it's been 70 years. I know Jerusalem has broken my heart. I know their ancestors have rejected me. I know Babylon has taken them into captivity. I know wicked kings have ruled over them. I know the temple's been destroyed and the treasures have been taken and a generation was sold into bondage but after all these years when I think about Jerusalem I am still provoked unto desire for my covenantal people and I hope this God still stirs your heart 70 years from today On Sunday night, the Lord spoke to me and says, when you see zeal for the house of the Lord take over a generation, you will know that what you have prayed for is beginning. I got on a plane Tuesday night, did Daystar Wednesday, flew out Thursday to Panama, preached Thursday night, and I wanna tell you the story of what happened in that service. I stood on stage with a translator who I felt bad for. I'm trying to keep up with me. He's trying to keep up with me keeping up with me. And I preached a message the Lord had laid on my heart out of the book of Joshua when God uses the next generation leader to rally the people to overthrow a city, which would begin a domino effect of Joshua taking authority over 31 cities in the promised land until that which God gave his people as an inheritance was brought under the dominion and the authority of the God that they worshiped. 
And as I began to preach, I saw the Spirit of God begin to fall on that room in a supernatural way. (laughs) You know what it's like when you're speaking to an audience and people are sitting like this? And then they're sitting like this. Then they're a little more leaned in and they're sitting on the edge of their seat and pretty soon they're rocking back and forth and their hands are raised. And before I could even reach the end of my sermon, I saw 2,000 young people stand up out of their seat and run to the altar with outstretched arms, asking God to pour out his spirit on Panama and all throughout Latin America. And the Lord spoke to me Thursday night on that stage and said, you are now seeing zeal take over a generation and that which you have been praying for is now beginning. And when I got on the plane Friday morning to fly back home, the airline got on the intercom and said, we're sorry to report, we've got no Wi-Fi working on this plane. We've got no media or movies that are able to be played. When you got no Wi-Fi on an airplane, it feels like persecution. The only thing that you're left to do is sleep, and so I did. I laid my head on that headrest and I began to sleep. And I was sleeping for about 30 or 40 minutes and the Lord awoke me in like a shaking moment. I shot up from my seat and the Lord spoke to my spirit so strong. And he said this, when zeal for the house of the Lord doesn't consume you, zeal for lesser things will. And I fell back asleep. And 30 minutes later, the Lord woke me up in a startle in the same exact matter. And he said, and Russell, here's the reality. You will be consumed by something. And the prayer of my heart from that airplane ride to this sermon on Sunday morning is God, may your zeal and may your passion so rest on the hearts of your people that with rendered spirits and available laid down lives, we will stop at nothing in the pursuit of your presence. May your zeal consume us until you once again become the chief object of our adoration and our desire. We don't hear about Zechariah again until Matthew 23, where Jesus tells us how he died. For you would think that the people loved Zechariah and they did for a moment. But when he compelled them unto faithfulness and fidelity, they got angry at his message and they killed him in the rebuilt temple. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if I die 
bury me between the bookends of sacrifice and his presence because there is simply not one other place that I would rather be. Oh, in medieval times, it was common for men and women of prestige to be buried in the floors of the churches. And when pilgrims from around the world would travel to these ornate cathedrals, they would quite literally walk over the sacrifice of those who gave their lives in defense of the gospel. And maybe the most beautiful example of this comes from St. John's Cathedral on the island of Malta, where 400 knights are buried across the floor and throughout the altar. And as people travel, to gather in this great building that has stood for nearly 1,500 years. They stand on the sacrifice of those who have come before them. And my hope is that when young people cross the threshold of these front doors and they stand in the presence of an almighty God at these altars, what they are standing on is the sacrifice of a generation that has gone before them who got so enraptured by the zeal of God that nothing could stop them from a pursuit of His presence. That the bones of those who came before would prophesy to the young who lived today that there is still a God in heaven who is worthy of all worship and praise and adoration. I am telling you, friend, the zeal for the house of God is breaking out afresh and anew amongst the young generation. And we will see God vindicate this nation with awakening unlike anything that we have ever seen before. It started happening at Auburn University this week where one of the football coaches decided to host a revival night service. So many people showed up that they used the sports stadium to pack them in. At the end of the service, they made a spontaneous call for baptism. Over 200 young people put faith in Christ Jesus. They didn't even have baptism tanks, so they had to go to the water feature in the middle of the university and dunk kids all night. Auburn ain't a Christian university, but we serve a God who is consumed with zeal for this nation and for this generation. And the thing that we owe him is that his zeal would overtake us and nothing would hold us back from a pursuit of his presence. Come on, stand as we close.